Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. In this year of contagion, it's easy to feel as if all you ever think about is risk. Spend some time with Mark Kingwell, and you'll discover that beyond our daily COVID calculations lies a white space of endless possibility. Mark is the author of On Risk, or If You Play, You Pay, The Politics of Chance in a Plague Year. Mark is a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, a national best-selling author, a contributing editor of Harper's Magazine, and has written for publications ranging from Adbusters and the New York Times to the Journal of Philosophy and Auto Racing Digest. Please enjoy our discussion and perhaps discover your own reasons for calloused hope during these challenging times. Thank you for joining me, Mark, and welcome to At Risk. Thanks, Jody. Good to be with you. So at its heart, on risk is an argument for greater fairness. Why why choose risk as your entry point? Well, it's in many ways an extension of a longstanding debate in political theory, uh, which um, is it goes back a long way, but got new energy in the 1970s when um, a great Harvard political theorist, John Rawls, uh, formulated a theory he called justice as fairness. And uh, the main idea is that uh, if we did not know who in particular we were, if we didn't know our own actual circumstances, uh, how would we choose to, to construct the basic uh, tenets and institutions of society? And uh, in a nutshell, the argument of, that Rawls offered was that uh, we would be a lot more egalitarian than we are in fact. And uh, we would try to, when we couldn't eliminate risks, control them. And uh, by means of that, deploy a distinction between a misfortune, which is something that can't be controlled, um, and an injustice, which uh, might demand political intervention. And so uh, risk is the occasion for this, uh, but it's, it's actually a lot of political philosophers in the, the sub-tradition that's called luck egalitarianism uh, have been writing about risks, especially unchosen risks, uh, for a long time. Uh, so I was writing about that uh, well before the, the pandemic hit. Uh, but of course, there was a quick pivot uh, given all the new factors and of course, the new awareness of, of risk in everyday life. Yeah, you're kind of meeting people where they are, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we tend to, as as humans, we tend to shunt risk away unless we're uh, deliberately choosing it. If we're gamblers or, uh, you know, entrepreneurs or uh, extreme sports enthusiasts. Uh, those are those are accepted chosen risks. For the most part, we tend to rationalize uh, or uh, marginalize risks, even when we know they're there. And we do that for our own sanity because it, it uh, you know, the, you, the the cliche is somebody who actually rationally thinks about all of his or her risks at every moment is paralyzed. You can't get out of bed, and even lying in bed has risks. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, in order to act and, and decide anything, we have to uh, work around risk. But uh, I guess part of the point I wanted to make was we're not very good at uh, acknowledging proximate risks. And we're certainly not very good at trying to to help to even out some of the bad distributions of risk across populations. Yeah, you describe risk 
management as sort of, you know, death management. And I guess we don't like to think about ends. No, I mean, uh, this is one of philosophy's uh, eternal burdens is that you have to keep reminding people that uh, mortality is the horizon of life. Uh, and as as I say at, at one point in the book, uh, Socrates, Socratic philosophy is sometimes described as a, a matter of learning how to die, which sounds kind of morbid, but um, learning how to die is also learning how to live because uh, that knowledge of our own mortality is inescapable. And what becomes urgent and meaningful is how we negotiate a world where uh, we know that our, our own individual existence will cease at some point. Uh, but we, we try to make the best of uh, the time that we're here with, with others and with the communities that we're part of. At the start of this podcast, I uh, spoke with Chris Hadfield, uh, the astronaut, and we had a great chat uh, about risk. And, you, you know, I asked him about his optimism that some people might think thinking about risks and all the things that could kill you uh, would turn you into a pessimist. But he saw it as a great enabler. Yeah, well, you know, it's the one reason why he's a high percentile achiever. <laughs> um, I mean, this is another interesting factor in um, the distribution of uh, these issues. Some people have higher tolerance of risk than others. And uh, to take um, Hadfield's uh, reaction. Some people have more positive reactions to risk than others. So uh, there's not just one um, metric and there's not just one uh, place where we all end up. But I think what's interesting about hearing that from an astronaut, and I write about this, I'm not, not about uh, uh, astronauts, but about aviation. And uh, aviation as an industry, aviators as a class are very good at understanding the nature of risk because they have to be. And when something goes badly wrong, there's always a takeaway that improves the, the overall discourse of safety for future flights. Uh, you're never going to eliminate crashes. Crashes are going to happen. But uh, there are all kinds of crashes that might have happened that didn't happen precisely because of, of that kind of, of folding in of knowledge. And I think that's what leads to optimism for people who are in that kind of uh, walk of life. Uh, most of us don't have that, right? We don't have investigators to come and tell us exactly what we did wrong when something goes badly. Uh, but we can all learn from our mistakes. And, uh, and you know, some things, like I said, some things are just um, out of the blue, literally out of the blue. Uh, you can't have prepared anything. Uh, but we can prepare. Uh, and even though we know preparations are always themselves limited, uh, and we can also learn. So going in and going out of high-risk events, uh, there, there is something to add to our sense of uh, how to negotiate our own limited futures and to share that knowledge with others if, if we have that opportunity. Yeah, thinking about COVID, there were a lot of reports that followed SARS and by, you know, prepared and written by very learned people. Um, yet you observe in the book you know, maybe we weren't so well prepared uh, for, for this pandemic. And, and you have some things to say about planning in general. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a point that many people have made. We, we, we ought to have done better uh, when it became obvious that the novel coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, was upon us. Uh, even though some things were unexpected about it. I mean, it was a novel uh, strain. 
And it moved much more quickly and much more unpredictably than, than anyone could have predicted. But there were a lot of things that could have been predicted and uh, their action was very slow. And I think this is, is a kind of large scale version of something you see in individuals too. Uh, it's it's uh, kind of um, it's it's sort of the bad side of optimism. It's the uh, exceptional, uh, you know, what that's not going to happen to us, so that's not going to happen to me. Um, current procedures are fine, uh, and so we didn't learn in that case, or we didn't learn nearly enough. And then once the consequences start to pile on, uh, you're into a lot of trouble because now you're playing catch up. And uh, the, the general planning point, I, I use a lot of military metaphors in, in the, the book because uh, it seems to me that's a real um, uh, crucible for the issue of planning and consequence. Uh, so, you know, the famous uh, quotation from Field Marshal Helmut von Moltke, uh, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, so the, the best laid plan uh, is going to go awry a glay, if you want to be Scots about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, you, you kind of have to figure that in, even though you, you plan for everything, you can't control all contingencies. So it's, it's really this balancing act between being the best possible planner you can with the knowledge at hand, uh, and also preparing yourself for what you can't plan for. Uh, but I think we, we failed on the first there. Um, I think most people would agree. Uh, there were precautions and, and measures that could have been taken that weren't uh, based on very, I mean, SARS isn't that long ago in Canada. Uh, and I think we should have done better. I think there is some anchoring bias in play as well. I think we prepared for the flu that when we think about infectious diseases, um, we get grounded in the preparations of what good flu pandemic preparation looks like. And with SARS, it was a hospital-based pandemic. So it was about keeping it inside hospitals and not letting it spill out in the community, whereas this is very much a community-based outbreak. And for that reason, we just didn't have enough resources. Yeah, I think that's quite right. And, um, Again, the, the speed was was not predictable, and and we're still struggling with with the science. Uh, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person who has confidence in science as a self correcting discourse, um, but that that entails that there are going to be mistakes. So, you know, uh, people have often criticized public health officials for not being uh, more uh, proactive about mask wearing at the, the very early weeks of, of the outbreak pandemic. Uh, but now we know that that is an effective measure in at least curbing some transmission. Uh, nevertheless, there's the other part of that is that uh, people, I mean, this I suppose is a different kind of anchoring bias. People don't like to alter their behavior. Uh, and, and then it got deeply politicized, which um, was extremely unfortunate and continues to be. Um, and I, I, I like to think that uh, maybe with recent political changes uh, in the United States, um, this may may change. But I don't know because I think there's there's a uh, a part of people who which um, simply doesn't want to alter a routine or a sense of freedom uh, for the sake of something that's that's characterized as a public responsibility. Uh, there's a resistance there. 
And that, that is frankly rooted uh, in a, a, you know, 400 years of, of individualism in, in the Western tradition. So the Western political tradition. So um, it, that, that's, you know, that's a, a very bad combination, actually, because uh, when science has to reverse itself, acknowledging an error, uh, which it does, um, then people say, oh, you, you were wrong. So why are you right now? And uh, that's a real problem because that then eventually tends to undermine people's faith in the measures that they're being asked to, to abide by, um, plus their own natural resistance based on this individualistic desire to stay the same. Yeah, this brings up uh, a part of your book where you talk about risk and community. And it really challenged my thoughts on these things. And and just give me two seconds to to kind of break that down. So you enter the topic and you reference uh, Malthus. So the person who thought maybe, you know, the earth might collapse from too many people and was very concerned about uh, exponential population growth versus linear food growth and, and what kind of, you know, disaster or crises um, that may lead to. And so, so, so there's that on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that in times of emergencies and crises, uh, people don't panic, that they actually come together and, and will, you know, sacrifice them themselves to a certain extent to, to help people out. And, you know, we saw that, uh, following 9-11, uh, you see that uh, in the context of, of plane crashes. Now, having sort of, you know, put those two poles in the ground, um, we're kind of somewhere in the middle with this crisis, right? Like, there, there, there's a lot of people banging pots for, for healthcare workers and bringing neighbors food. But there is, you know, resistance to mask wearing and, and restaurants refusing to close. I, I must say, I'm very kind of challenged by, by all this. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, I, I don't know if, I'm not sure what the middle is there, but uh, we've certainly got both of those kinds of things going on quite visibly. Uh, I, it, I suppose, I think it depends a lot on, your sense of how you mesh with a, a larger uh, community, uh, whether you feel uh, connected to other people, uh, especially if the other people are strangers. Uh, mm. You know, it's easy to be connected to your family and your, your close friends and even your neighbors. You see them all the time. Uh, but public goods, uh, public health goods in particular, depend upon distant strangers being some, someone who matters to you. Uh, to alter your behavior. So it's not just helping the, the person who's right beside you who's in need. Uh, you have to alter your behavior in a, uh, a kind of um, non-immediate way, non-proximate way. And I think that's what people struggle with. Uh, and then I think that struggle, I understand that. I think it, that there is a lot of moral psychological research to show how difficult it is for us to concretely imagine the suffering of others, especially if it hasn't happened yet. Uh, but it might happen. Uh, but then the other, you know, you mentioned the restaurants and, um, you know, things. I, I, speaking of, of bad risk assessment, I read a piece recently where some people who were dining indoors in, uh, I guess, Virginia, 
were were interviewed outside after they had had their dinner and were asked why they thought that was okay. And, you know, the variety of answers is is a kind of object lesson in, in bad reasoning and bad risk management because <laughs> people said, well, well, the restaurant was open, so I guess it was okay. Or I saw other people in there, so I guess it was okay. Or I know this restaurant and I come here often, so I guess it's okay. And all of those are, are completely bad arguments. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the restaurant owners, we understand their, their motivation to resist uh, you know, a lockdown measure because it, it's their livelihood. Yeah. And restaurants in particular, that, that's already in the best of times a risky proposition. I mean, more than half of restaurants fail within two years. Uh, so, uh, you know, you get that. Um, on the other hand, uh, or maybe now we're on the third hand or fourth one, I don't know. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it really okay to, uh, to create those kinds of risks when there are, are other alternatives? And I think we've seen that with, with things like prepared food. You know, some places, some establishments have been very nimble in uh, transitioning to other ways of keeping their profit margins at least existent, if not as wide as before. And uh, that's really, that's to be applauded because these are the conditions for, for the foreseeable future. And, you know, we hope that that uh, future isn't that long, but um, it's still with us right now, that's for sure. Now, you also go into a lot of detail about how we don't share a common COVID risk, who you are, where you come from, the nature of your upbringing, your access to income, all of these things influence your COVID risk. Yeah, this I think in, in a way, this for me was the biggest COVID-related takeaway, and it actually related back to the work I was uh, doing on risk beforehand, which was specifically about um, the geography of risk. So um, that's, you know, part of it is is the birthright lottery, uh, where you happen to be born and to whom and when. Uh, these are massive factors on your life chances and life outcomes over which you as an individual have no control. Uh, so uh, countries, uh, continents, regions, even uh, cities and neighborhoods have a huge differential effect in the distribution of risk. And uh, you can't you can't control uh, you know some of that or maybe even much of it. But uh, to pretend it's not there, I think is is the conceptual error. Uh, what COVID showed us was just how devastating that unevenness, that differential, can be because we know that the effects have been much more. Uh, widely felt in uh, certain populations, uh, black people in the United States, indigenous people in Canada, poor people, elderly people everywhere. Uh, there are reasons for this, but uh, if if we're starting from a, a premise that uh, every person is equally worthy uh, ethically and politically, well, then we have to pay close attention to that. And I guess just to add to the last uh, little bit of our discussion, the focus on people you know, probably comfortable, if not wealthy people who are eating in, in restaurants, I think sometimes takes away from these larger structural issues, uh, which uh, people find hard to think about because um, they're, first of all, they're, they're broad and somewhat abstract, and they're also very uncomfortable. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be reminded that uh, the, the condition of, of most black people in the United States is much worse than the condition of most white people. Uh, 
and because it's a minority population, uh, you know, there's, and there's all kinds of other politicized elements. Um, I think it's likewise true here with, with indigenous people. Um, and again, geography, you know, the North is, uh, has, has, you know, been okay with COVID, but um, their medical facilities are proportionately not very uh, capacious compared to big cities. So, um, the, the, these kinds of issues, I think, are difficult to talk about, but they're really important when we think about the politics of risk. And I, I put that phrase in, in my subtitle because I really think all of this is political. Absolutely. In Canada's far north, um, northern Indigenous peoples continue to battle TB. So the burden of infectious diseases is nothing new to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is, um, again, you have to do some slicing because uh, if, if you said to, I don't know, uh, some international panel, uh, is it lucky or unlucky to be born in Canada? Most people would say, you know, it's extremely lucky, but there isn't just one Canada. Uh, and it's being Canadian is a, a lot of different things, depending on where you live, who you are, uh, what your identity is. So um, this is this is uh, you know this is what political theory, especially justice theory, is all about: is trying to keep these questions in the in the foreground, so that we can, at the very least, think about them critically, and at the very most, maybe adopt principles and, and policies that actually alleviate some of the, the suffering that is, un, in fact, unnecessary. I had the opportunity to speak with Emily St. John Mandel, um, and uh, her latest book is The Glass Hotel, and it centers on a Ponzi scheme, very much uh, modeled after uh, Bernie Madoff's. She said the inspiration for that book was really to try and show or invite you into the kingdom of money. <laughs> that yeah. there, that there is, you know, this world that defies geographic and international boundaries. Um, that a certain class of people uh, live in their entire lives, one private jet ride to the next. Yeah, uh, I should say I haven't read that book yet. I, 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 I want to. I, I did read Station Eleven, and actually, uh, just recently taught it to a first year class here at uh, University of Toronto and they the students loved it. Uh, she's a great writer, I think. Um, but the, the money thing is interesting because uh, I forget who the writer was, but somebody coined the phrase air people uh, to, to describe people who are so cocooned and wealthy that they don't even have to put overcoats on because, you know, you go straight from the house to the limo, straight from the limo to the airport, to the private jet. Uh, and, of course, that that uh, we've we've seen fictional depictions of this before. I think they're all really interesting. Succession, the television mm. show, is one such with the Canadian connection as it happens. Uh, Jonathan Dee's novel, The Privileges, I think, is a brilliant depiction of of the, oh, yeah. the super wealthy. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, so yeah, th this actually goes back to a, an earlier point that I was making about distribution of risk tolerance and risk aversion. Uh, it's that's not just a basic a baseline natural quality. You're much more able to be risk tolerant if you know that you have these layers of protection around you. Uh, so that's why uh, wealthy people still build homes on 
uh, earthquake prone zones because they know if the earthquake strikes, uh, you know, they can, they can just buy another house somewhere else. Uh, or they have, you know, massively insured, uh, policies. Uh, so you can, you can be sort of, uh, propelled into a risk tolerant state, which is really the basis of your own luck. And, uh, and I don't mean to say that, that people who earn money didn't do it fairly. Some did, some didn't. Uh, but what it comes down to, even for those of us who are only, you know, comfortable or, or modestly well off, uh, we can tolerate more risks because we have that safety net that is personal rather than social. Did you happen to watch Last Dance, the Chicago Bulls documentary? I did. Yeah. So to me, Scotty Pippen is the perfect example of or illustration of your point about the context in which you were born and raised influences your risk tolerance and risk aversion. Now, as a young child, he his passion was basketball, and he stayed with that passion. But when he was presented with his first contract, he accepted it without a lot of negotiation. He had a, and he mentioned in the in the documentary, right? He he had he had a father who was living in a wheelchair due to a devastating stroke, and he also had a brother who was uh, with a wheelchair due to a gym accident. Um, and he just thought about his family and, and he took the contract. Yeah. I thought all of that stuff was, was very moving. I've always, I didn't know any of that, to be honest. I uh, always liked Scotty Pippen as a player. And, um, and I, I, I think like most people felt that he was over his, his talent was overshadowed by, the genius of, of Michael Jordan. But uh, when you put people, you know, you see them in, in, uh, on, on the court or on the football field or the baseball diamond, uh, you sometimes can't always know much about where they come from and, and how they got there. And uh, it does make a big difference. Uh, you know, they're uh, switching into a different field. I, I've been talking to some other students of mine about who becomes a famous artist or not. Mm -hmm. And there, there's really interesting evidence that uh, shows predictors for that, that uh, have almost nothing to do with aesthetic ability, but a lot more to do with circumstance, with um, lineage, uh, with where, whether you happen to be in a, in a city or able to be in a city that has a thriving art community, art world. Uh, so I think in every walk of life, there, there are these elements of um, uh, contingency, I guess, is the, the best uh, single word for it. And uh, what what becomes meaningful is the narrative. Uh, so this is the upside of individualism. I, it seems to me, it has always seemed to me, that uh, yeah, there there's uh, what is it, seven and a half billion of us on the planet now, something like that, mm -hmm. uh, maybe more. Uh, but each one of of those uh, many billions of people is an individual story. It's a you know, it's a coming from somewhere, trying to get somewhere else, uh, trying to achieve something. Uh, that's, you know, that's the human drama. And that's what makes it so fascinating. Uh, risk is interesting for this because it's inescapable. It is omnipresent. Uh, and you, you can distinguish it from a danger. This is a distinction that a philosopher called Stefano Masso makes. Uh, danger is just sort of whatever the environment presents. Risk is how danger is 
uh, presented to the individual or the community. Uh, so risk is a human thing. Uh, danger is an environmental thing. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about these questions because it, it focuses our attention on um, how we can think more clearly uh, about the nature of risk and, and how we think, how we face it. I was very much struck by uh, your writing on the way we perceive chosen risks versus those risks that are foisted upon people. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I referred to it briefly before. A chosen risk is, you know, the classic example is making a bet in a casino. Um, and I, that's one reason I talk about gambling a little bit in the book, because uh, gambling is a really, really interesting human activity, uh, because you know that you're taking a risk. You may know what the odds are, but if you know what the odds are, you know that they're, they're almost always against you, and yet you take the risk anyway. Uh, so that's that's an interesting kind of um, psychological, uh, you know, dance step that you're doing there, uh, especially when you know whatever you're gambling. <clears throat> it's usually money, but it could be it could be gambling anything. Uh, the the whole point of gambling is you don't know the outcome. So uh, other kinds of chosen risks are are likewise interesting. So I mentioned entrepreneurs, somebody who bets their life savings on starting up a business, is taking a huge risk. And they don't have to. Uh, they could continue to work at a, a wage job, say, uh, and you know, but they they want to. They want to test their ability to to win. And uh, again, extreme sports or uh, some kinds of outdoor activities. Uh, these are chosen risks because you you go out there knowing that the environment can be hostile, uh, and you do it for the thrill. Uh, so unchosen risks are those ones that come at you, like it or not, and especially, you know, the unchosen ones that you don't like. <laughs> um, you know, there there are I, I I didn't distinguish, but now that I'm thinking about it, there must be unchosen risks that are are uh, enjoyable. Um, you know, it's a bit like positive externalities in the economic sense. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I meet a stranger who I fall in love with. Um, that's an uh, that's a risk in a way uh, because who knows what's going to happen, but it's an enjoyable unchosen risk. I didn't go seeking that person. Uh, that one just that example just springs to mind. I don't know, but uh, for the most part, we we want to be when we think about risk, choosing the ones that that we encounter and avoiding the ones that we don't want to choose. Uh, and it's not always possible, of course. Yes. Uh, so I, I used to work in healthcare, spend a, a lot of time doing that. Um, and, you know, when we went and spoke to people about the risk environment inside of a hospital, and this was, you know, just after SARS and, you know, during H1N1, we used to frame it as healthcare is a high risk activity. Our goal is not to avoid risk. Our goal is to know all the risks we're taking on because that gives us the best chance of managing through them. Yeah. So that, that you know, that's a great point. And of course, it's, it's uh, extremely relevant to our current situation. Uh, I think you can, you can add certain professions uh, to that. Uh, so firefighters, uh, police officers, um, service people and, in the military. Uh, these are these are people whose careers involve 
risk, sometimes on a daily basis. And the, the, the profession itself includes an awareness of those risks. So uh, like I said earlier, you know, in the military context, but it applies to all of them, uh, things will go wrong. They, they, um, you, can't, you can't control everything and you can't plan for everything. Uh, but that, th those are interesting professions. And I think, uh, you know, we, we know that they attract a certain kind of person. Uh, in the case of health, uh, people who, who, you know, they want to help people. All of those professions in their own way want to help people. Uh, and so that, that's an interesting uh, aspect of this, that um, these aren't necessarily uh, strictly individual choices. The choice to enter the profession is individual, but the profession itself is a choice uh, to... Uh, meet that kind of risk as, as, as knowledgeably as possible to, to pick up on your point. And you also discuss, so as observers of people who have taken on a risk, we think very differently about those people who have chosen a risk versus those who have had it foisted upon them. Yeah, and it, this is also complicated psychology because uh, participant and spectator put you in very different positions, obviously, with respect to this. Uh, so in many cases, we, 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 as spectators, we might tend to think, well, if you chose the risk, then the, the possible bad outcome is just your responsibility. And I guess you could say that about certain things like... Uh, oh, I don't know, mixed martial arts fights or something like that. You know, you, you, right. if you step into the octagon, uh, you're, you're basically asking for trouble. And uh, you might win, but you also might lose. That's the whole point. Uh, and that, that's, I don't myself find that sport uh, tolerable, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the interest that spectators have in it is precisely that, that uh, each uh, athlete takes responsibility. Uh, but there can be blame as well. So in that case, we're celebrating the taking of responsibility. But sometimes we blame people for taking risks because we think they were being dumb and they shouldn't have taken the risk. And so there's a kind of censoriousness that can creep in. Uh, and so it's, a, it's actually very, very hard to separate the strands between responsibility and blame because <clears throat> sometimes the, the outcome wasn't a direct result of your your own choices. This interesting point about uh, how we view somebody who who takes a risk. So as we as we're spectators of someone choosing a risk, uh, I was thinking there are cases. This actually is COVID related. Uh, in the beginning, people were comparing uh, not wearing a mask to say um, cycling or riding a, a motorbike without a helmet. And that it was just, well, you, it's your choice. It's a dumb choice, but it's your choice and, and you will have to shoulder the consequences. But then people realize that it's much more accurate to see this as more like drunk driving, which is also a choice. And it puts you at risk as the, dr the drunk driver, but also puts other people at risk. And that's when it creeps into uh, justified disapproval. Uh, we, I was thinking again about... Um, uh, the novel about the Ponzi scheme, if, if somebody makes a bad investment, uh, we, we look at them askance if they lose because we say, well, that was a bad investment. Uh, but if they win, 
then we might think, oh, well, maybe I should have taken that risk. So a lot depends on outcomes, but but not all of it, because uh, part of it is just what exactly is at risk? Is it just the individual who makes the choice or are there other uh, members of the community, other, say, it could be environmental issues uh, that are part of the risk that is not purely individual? Well, and you also make this very interesting point that while our sympathies may be uh, for the people who have have had to carry the burden of unchosen risk, but will still often help even the actors like the big company that ends up becoming insolvent, um, even though they have chosen that risk. So, so there's this kind of emotion versus action gap. Yeah, I think that's true. And there are complicated motives for that, it seems to me. Uh, sometimes we, we just, we have, a, we have our own interests in not seeing things fail. So, uh, you know, or, or there's, there's an institutional interest. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the bank bailout in the United States was partly, you know, based on the idea that they were too big to fail, that if there was actual accountability for bad risks that were taken by choice, there would actually be more widespread suffering than uh, simply, you know, propping them up. And that's a complicated kind of, uh, you know, late capitalist move, um, which many people found distasteful, but nevertheless, you can see the reasoning there. I also think it may, may be more uh, basic human psychology that, uh, you know, nobody likes to see uh, somebody lose. Uh, like, you know, again, with, with certain exceptions like sporting events where you go precisely because there's going to be a winner and a loser. Uh, I think many of us at least, I hope have a kind of empathetic baseline where we want everyone to succeed. We, you know, it is a competitive world. It is, you know, we're, we're primates, so we're hierarchical. Uh, we're status driven, but we, I think most of us would like to see something like a rising tide that floats all boats that uh, if, if, you know, one person is, is better off than before, then maybe everyone is better off than before. Uh, that goes back to John Rawls, by the way. His idea of this, what he calls the difference principle is that uh, inequalities in uh, outcome of goods are tolerable insofar, only insofar as they make everyone better off. They make the worst off better off. Uh, and I think that's a really, you know, nice way to leverage this point. Uh, we can, we don't, you know, we don't want to be levelers. We don't want to say everybody has to be the same, have the same life of the same degree of wealth. Uh, but the uh, inequalities should redound to the benefit of the least well-off. Uh, that seems to me is a basic justice principle. Yeah. To ground it in COVID, the way that I think about it is, have you seen that Swiss cheese model that illustrates all of the different layers of protection, you know, starting with personal responsibilities like hand washing, um, wearing a mask, and then the further uh, right you go in the diagram, it also talks about sort of shared responsibilities. So, you know, governments putting in, you know, testing and tracing. Um, but the point of that diagram is really to show all of these things have holes, but when you stack them up in front of each other, that's how you create a good barrier. Yeah, that's. I think that's a nice visual because... One thing that I found frustrating, like many people, is 
people who, uh, the critics who choose one thing, especially mask wearing, um, and say, well, look, it's not 100% effective, so why should I do it at all? Uh, and that that adds to that earlier uh, point that I made about, well, you were wrong then, why are you right now? And it just it's just such a reductive way to think about public health, and frankly, to think about risk more generally. You know, there's a reason why, uh, you know, I, I quote this uh, scene from uh, The Deer Hunter, uh, where uh, they go hunting, deer hunting, and Robert De Niro has packed an extra pair of boots. And one of his buddies uh, has come just wearing street shoes, and he wants to borrow the extra pair of boots. And the Robert De Niro character won't give them to him because he's, he's there prepared. He's prepared for the fact that he might need a second pair of boots. And uh, the other person just hasn't, hasn't kind of clocked the way that risk works. Uh, and I think that that is kind of, you know, a, a, a compelling uh, cinematic analogy to this. Like you, you have to have multiple layers of preparation uh, to have the best possible chance of avoiding disaster. Absolutely. And the challenge that I think your book gets at is if you are from a low income community, if you are from a racialized community, or if you are elderly, the holes in each slice of Swiss cheese are a little bit bigger for you. Yeah. And they, they probably align more um, so that, you know, there is a, a direct way through. And that's where, uh, you know, that uh, you, you mentioned past the individual choice, individual responsibility. Uh, you know, the state does have a role here, a huge role in making sure that the most vulnerable are the most protected. And it, it frustrates me too that I see a lot of uh, commentators saying, well, government has let us down. It's given us contradictory advice. It hasn't protected us. Uh, you know, often those, those people are the ones who uh, should be saying something like, well, don't depend on the government if you have the means to be personally responsible yourself. If you don't have those means, then yeah, that's, that's where the role of government is fully justified. And I think when you when you push people on this point, get them upstream a bit back to kind of basic social contract thinking, I think they agree. You know, I think hmm. at least I, I think in, in Canada, we have a, a tradition of uh, this kind of, of social welfare and social justice that um, people, broadly speaking, accept. And they, they think that is a justifiable role of government. Uh, some of us, you know, we can largely fend for ourselves. Um, as long as we make smart choices. But there are many people who don't even have the chance to make those choices. You discuss in the book that that you're quite challenged by the parsing of health as a public good, because once it actually gets to a bedside, you know, it's a it's a very distributed thing. And it's very it's much more transactional than it is, you know, a, a public good. The the interesting thing for me, you know, having worked in health policy for so long, health is a public good, but illness treatment, even with a single payer system, is much more susceptible to health inequities. Yeah, that's. I think that's an important distinction, and I, I maybe I don't know that I drew it uh, sharply as uh, sharply as you just did. Um, but yes, that that is the point that uh, that I think we're seeing. Um, you know, health is 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 a public trust, a public good. 
Uh, and, you know, in economic terms, a public good is something that's non-rival and non-excludable. It means uh, my enjoying it doesn't uh, prevent you from enjoying it, and you're not excluded from being there in the first place. Uh, and it, it also means we all have a stake in it. So uh, the opposite is, you know, if we pursued our, our purely private interests in terms of health, it would be probably a version of the tragedy of the commons. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when, when yeah, when um, the rubber meets the road, when we're talking about hard distributions of available resources like hospital beds, and in the beginning, you know, there was a lot of talk about respirators and you've got scarcity, uh, then it becomes very, very difficult. And, you know, they're now talking about uh, what they call parking lot triage. Uh, you know, it used to be um, the, the cynical phrase for the um, <laughs> sort of warped American health system was uh, pocketbook or wallet triage. Uh, but now, now we're talking about um, having to make these really bad choices or oh, they're bad. I mean, they're difficult, nasty choices between who gets treated and how. And I, I think frequently of people who have severe illnesses uh, right now that are not COVID related and how they are therefore uh, competing for, for scarce resources for treatment. They absolutely are. Um, and, you know, we're going to see this play out when it, when it comes time to, you know, develop that priority list for vaccine distribution. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely right. I mean, this is something I think uh, nobody wants to think about for very long because it's, it, it is potentially quite scary. Uh, and now we, we uh, just recently heard the prime minister say that uh, because there's no production facilities in Canada uh, to manufacture doses, uh, we may be uh, down the list even to get the doses into the country let alone distribute them to the, the most necessary people. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's actually probably the, the upside of that would be, uh, let's just accept that we're settling in for a fairly long haul and there, everybody will get a dose if they want one eventually, but we don't know how long that eventually is going to be. Yes. And so long as we're efficient, once they start, rolling out and we have our clear priorities, the number that really matters is when you complete your vaccination program. It's actually not when you start. So it's entirely possible that a country like the United States that is so uh, freedom-focused, individual liberty-focused, that it still may take, even if you correct for the differences in population, it still may take them a much longer time to actually vaccinate everybody. And we won't truly have herd immunity until you, to, till you reach that, that last shot. So that, that's the other kind of thing that I'm trying to kind of calm myself down about. It, it's okay. It's not, it's not about when you start the race. It's about when you finish. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it, it again, emphasizes the, um, the community dimension of this, uh, the, you know, they, I mean, they, they called it Operation Warp Speed and, uh, you know, uh, immunologists and other medical professionals complained about the idea that, that they were going too fast to develop effective vaccines. It now seems as though some vaccines uh, might be quite effective. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. It's not when, uh, you know, 
before the end of the year, the vaccine will be available. Well, that's kind of a meaningless statement. Uh, if, uh, you know, you're talking in that case, a country of uh, whatever it is, 375 million people, um, uh, you know, 35, 37 million people in Canada, uh, it's, it, it's going to take a while. And um, I, I should just say, by the way, you know, we talked about uh, flu earlier. Uh, I always get my flu shot, but this year, my local pharmacy didn't have any doses. So I had to go and find a pharmacy that did. And I got the last one that they had uh, in the store. And uh, hmm. that that's kind of frightening because it just, it felt like uh, it was probably unrelated to anything to do with COVID, but it felt like a, a kind of vision of the future where we might be waiting in long lines to get vaccinated. Uh, you know, we've 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 been waiting in a lot of long lines in the past uh, eight or nine months. Uh, it's not a, a nice prospect. Well, I can share my positive experience. I booked I booked an appointment with Ottawa Public Health, and I showed up at the time, and I was in and out uh, very very efficiently, and and did get get my flu shot. But I must say, so so as I'm getting the flu shot, I'm because I'm chatty. Uh, I'm chatting with the person who's uh, delivering my, my vaccination. And, you know, I ask him, you know, so what do you normally do? Do you work for public health? Are you a volunteer? You know, what's your situation? And he explains that, yes, he works for public health, uh, but that normally he does the, the school immunizations. And I'm like, oh, well, boy, you're just the person I wanted to talk to because my daughter was in school. And then like everyone else, schools shut down in March and she actually missed the second phase of her grade seven immunizations. And I was like, when are we going to get those? <laughs> and he was like, well, I much prefer, first of all, he made it clear, I much prefer to be doing, being in schools and vaccinating young kids. He said that it's a much better job. And, and he said he really missed the kids, which I thought was quite sweet. And um, the second thing he said was, well, that they, you know, thought they might be able to get back to that in January, but it also depends on when the COVID vaccine becomes available because he may also then be redeployed uh, to do COVID vaccinations. So my daughter still might not get her second suite of vaccinations. And there's a lot of research into how many infants aren't getting measles shots and their MMRs uh, on schedule because of a fear of going to um, a physician's office to to receive it. So all this to say, in my more morose times, you know, I think about really, you know, obviously each COVID death is terrible for the person, the family. It's horrible because it also seems quite um, unavoidable um, if, you know, in a perfect world. But it's also really scary because I think overall, like, our, our, our mortality is going to be impacted by this. For the people who had other diseases that didn't get diagnosed later on or people who never got to receive uh, timely treatment for the, for the other vaccines that, you know, children didn't get in time uh, or got delayed, you know, all of this is going to have a material impact on us as a human race. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, you, you can you can sort of identify different aspects of this. Um, so though, you know, ripple effects where attention to one uh, problem pulls attention away from or resources away from another. Uh, there are secondary and tertiary effects. So 
uh, it's not a binary, much as it's been posed as, as such by many people, but economic costs uh, as against public health costs, uh, and uh, you know, on and on. It uh, or and not to mention long-term effects. Uh, so some people, my my stepdaughter had uh, early on had a, a pretty severe case of COVID and was isolated in quarantine for a while. Uh, she recovered and she's feeling fine now, but uh, we simply don't know what the long-term effects might be, even in young, healthy people who are able to uh, weather the, the, the virus. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think we're, we're ever going to be able to say, well, here's the line that we draw and underneath it's over, you know? And frankly, when you think about uh, public health and especially immunology, it's never over. I mean, there's a reason we have a flu shot every year. There's a reason that children get those vaccinations uh, because we know that that they work from hard experience and we have to keep on doing it. The, the, the environment, you know, the, the earth is a beautiful planet, but it's also hostile sometimes. Yes. Uh, and we, we can't ever forget that. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not our playground uh, by, by any stretch. Um, you know, one of the things um, I was also thinking about, you know, circumstance and, you know, what it all means. And I often, and how it plays out in terms of how you think about risk. And I often tell people, I feel very grateful to come from a very large family uh, because there's two family stories, I guess, uh, that I feel very well served by um, uh, in these circumstances. And, and it goes to the points made in your book. One is, on my father's side of the family, there was a seventh son of a seventh son, which is supposed to be like the luckiest thing to be, double sevens, right? And he got bit by a rabid dog and he died. So, we often tell that story in our family there's no such thing as luck. Mm -hmm. And the second story is um, not so much a story, just just a person uh, in, in our family. Um, I had an uncle and, and he had a limp and it was because of polio. So, this, you know, this, this specter of infectious disease, and then I would later go work at Mount Sinai Hospital. I've been thinking about infectious disease for a really long time and they've been quite present in my life. And you know what? In some ways, that's a good thing because... I think it's less scary for me to make some of the changes, right? Like to wear a mask, it's like, sure, I'd much rather have a mask than a limp or die or worse, right? Yeah, and that, I think that's a really good point to keep making. Uh, you know, the, the level of, again, for most of us, for, for some people, uh, the disruption in their everyday wage jobs is uh, a real problem. Making rent is a real problem. Uh, but for most of us who are, you know, relatively comfortable, the costs are pretty minimal, frankly, in the in the, the large scheme of things. Wearing a mask is nothing. Uh, it really is nothing. And uh, I just can't understand why that seems to be such a big deal. Um, uh, you know, I don't, and I, I don't know. Um, and, and, you know, not going to restaurants. Going to restaurants is a privilege. It's a celebration. I think we, we got too comfortable with, with the degree of wealth that uh, many of us enjoy and started to take these comforts and luxuries for granted. Uh, so it's no bad thing to to be reflecting on that. Uh, I have a quick polio story myself, which is um, in my high school, which was a very uh, uh, 
pro football high school. Uh, they won all of these city championships over many decades. And all of the, the championship teams were in this trophy case. And on one of the plaques, it said, and I forget which year it was, um, uh, no football polio. And that was the only entry for that, that whole year. And it, it, I always was fascinated by that because I didn't really understand what polio was and uh, you know how you couldn't have a shared locker room say, or showers, uh, or even be on the football field together. And uh, and then I, I, I don't know if you know uh, John O'Hara's novel, A Rage to Live, which uh, mm. features polio as a kind of background condition of life in this small city in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating to think about that, that uh, people have lived through things like this before. We're living through it now. Uh, it's not unprecedented. Uh, and th- these relatively small sacrifices that we have to make if if they even count as sacrifices I, I just think of them as precautions and you know the way life is um they they really do not puncture any of the big things that matter if anything you know i know people have said this i hope it's true they make us reflect on on what those big things really are you implore readers to have hope but calloused hope explain what you mean by that I can't take credit for that phrase, um, the callous part. Uh, that came from a New York Times writer. Uh, but I endorsed it because uh, I've been thinking about hope uh, in political terms for a while. It, it's rooted in, there's a great uh, German uh, philosopher called Ernst Bloch, uh, who wrote a, a, a massive book called The Principle of Hope. Uh, and uh, his argument was that hope is essential to thinking because thinking is always about what might be. And if we don't have hope, then we have just given up on thinking uh, and vice versa. Uh, that's that's a, a very small nutshell of a very large book, <laughs> but um, that's it. And then another book by a former teacher of mine, Jonathan Lear, called Radical Hope, where he talked about the, the Crow Nation, first uh, um, indigenous nation in uh, the, the prairies, American prairies, uh, and how they were basically wiped out through, uh, you know, depredations of, of colonialism in the United States. And, uh, and yet the, the, the members of the nation who survived physically uh, had a kind of what, what Lear calls radical hope that though uh, nothing was happening to the nation, that the nation would nevertheless somehow persist. And, uh, that's really interesting to me because it, it, for one thing, it gives us a new way of thinking about temporality. So obviously memory and tradition are bolsters uh, to move from the present into the future. But I think we fear the future too much sometimes or we give it too much power. And, and we also see it as monolithic. We see it as just one big thing. Uh, it's the same way that we think about normal. You know, people are often talking these days about the return to normal. No, I, you know, the future is something that is created piece by piece by individual choices, uh, decisions and actions. And uh, it's not it's not monolith. It's uh, it's an open book. And I think that's the, the idea of hope that I would like to see people keep close. Um, the callous part is, of course, you have to be tough. Uh, and I mean, a callous, it's a, it's a very nice image because a callous, what does it show? It shows that you have been working. Uh, it's not a wound. It's it's a hard one uh, mark on the body of your own toil or practice. 
you know, from tools or a musical instrument or something like that. Uh, it shows that you're actively engaged in creating the world. And, uh, and I, I can't think of, of anything better to say about uh, our current situation that, uh, than that uh, hope is the thing. It's not empty. It's not, you know, mere optimism. Uh, it's not, you know, a kind of uh, simple-minded, everything will work out. Uh, in fact, I'm quite nasty about some of those stock phrases about it's all good and, you know, um, everything happens for a reason. I think those are exactly the wrong kinds of versions of future orientation. Uh, no, it, everything will be good only if we make it good. And that's what I think hope is. Mark Kingwell, thank you so much for joining me and for this really enjoyable and enriching conversation. Thank you, Jody. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>